Hello, everybody. Okay, so you can keep fidgeting, moving around, it's all good. So we've got five minutes or so before we're going to get into the, the talk, and I've been asked to review some books. I have, five, I have five minutes, I have 11 books. You do the maths, because I'm not sure I've got time to. Now, first book, and I was told by Alex Ben, yes, respect, that I needed to do this first, the Bible. $5.99. I think it's probably obscene that we charge so little for the Word of God. I think we should charge much more, because isn't it much more precious than that? But God knows better than me. And so He says, I give you my Word freely, but we're going to charge you $5.99. <laughs> so, unless, of course you don't have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one. I haven't checked this. I'll buy you one, actually. Like, if, if you don't own a Bible, please, I want you to have a Bible. And I think we've actually got some to give away. So if you don't have a Bible, please come and get one tonight. Where should they go? Rego table, over there. If you don't own a Bible, don't have a Bible, go to the Rego table after tonight and we will give you a Bible. Okay, the Bible. Read it. It is the, it is the best book to read, is the Bible. Okay. Uh, some other quick books um, on different topics. So we've been looking at the doctrine of humanity. What does the Bible say about humanity this week? Here's a great little book, $7.99, What Makes Us Human?, written for engineers because it is less than 100 pages and only very little pages with not many words. And I think we've got stacks of these books and it would be really good. Grab something that you can read later on that will give you another sort of... Um, a, it's the same sort of material but just expressed better than I can express it by somebody else. And I think it would be an encouraging way to remind yourself of some of the truths from this week. And seriously, you can read that on the bus in, in week one of semester. So why don't you grab that, take that home and read it. Another one in the same series, if you want to explore the topic of sexuality and gender a bit more, is this one, Is God Anti-Gay? Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Aubrey. A really good one. I actually bought it electronically, but you can pick up a hard copy here for $7.99. We've got stacks of them. It's a really good little book, really helpful int uh, introduction to that topic from what the Bible says. Strongly recommend it. If you're thinking about... How do I actually live for Jesus? How do I actually deal with the sin in my life in the power of His Spirit? How do I do that? I think this is a very good book to start with. It's called You Can Change by Tim Chester. The subtitle tells you why this is not just some sort of, yes, you can do it all in your own power sort of book. It's not a self-help book. It says, God's transforming power for our sinful behavior and negative emotions. It is a really excellent little book, and I strongly recommend it to anyone who struggles with sin. Oh, that's all of you, yes. <laughs> there's lots of them on the bookstore. Not 700, but there's quite a number, and so I strongly recommend that book. 
What about if we've been talking a bit about suffering on Tuesday night, and we talked about it again in our faculty times this morning. If you want to explore that issue some more, here's a good little book by Paul Grimmond, who works over at UNSW in the CBS ministry over there, and he's put this book together, Suffering Well, The Predictable Surprise of Christian Suffering. I think that would be a really great little book. He writes not just from a deep understanding of God's Word, he writes from real-life experience of having to struggle through some really serious stuff. And so I think that's a a great book to read uh, and have a look at. One of the things we want to do is be able to present the Gospel of Jesus to people from all sorts of backgrounds and with all sorts of different worldviews. If you've been, um, you sort of already know the Gospel and you think, yeah, I can explain the gospel, then maybe this book will be good for you because it'll help you to start to think about how can I explain the gospel to people who are coming from a different place from me, working with a different worldview from me. And so this is called A Spectator's Guide to Worldviews, edited by Simon Smart. It's a collection of uh, essays on different things. If I flick it open and I look at the table of contents, you've got the table of contents up there and you've got the wrong book there, by the way. You've gone too far. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Can you do the table of contents? No. See, sometimes live is better. See? Anyway, um, here's some of the topics they cover. Uh, Modernism, postmodernism, utilitarianism, humanism, liberalism, feminism, relativism, new age spirituality, consumerism. Helps give you just one chapter on each of those to get your head into that sort of worldview so you can explain the gospel. Great little book. Uh, It's been exciting to see lots of people go along to the seminars on Jesus and Islam and lots of people expressing interest in the EU's Kazmin ministry. That's exciting. This is a book that uh, Musa apparently recommends, uh, Engaging with Muslims. Is that correct, Musa? Paddy told me that. Is that right? He says yes. Great. You just got to say that loudly. Uh, Engaging with Muslims, Understanding their World and Sharing Good News. There's lots of those up on the bookstall. So uh, lots of you could walk away with one of these and that would be a great thing to read as we work out how do we talk about Jesus with Muslims that we meet on campus. That would be great. If you're a Bible study leader, I reckon this is a great book that you should buy because if you buy it, you'll use it for about the next 45 years. And so this book is Leading Better Bible Studies by Rod and Karen Karen and Rod Morris. This is a book that I've got on my bookshelf and that I've used repeatedly over about 15 years, so I've still got about another 30 years use out of it still to go. It really does help you think about different ways you can help a group of people engage with God's Word. It's just so chock full of good ideas that it's a a ridiculous steal at $19.99. Okay. Hand up if you're a university student. Awesome. How many of you university student who's gone to any event associated with a Christian group at Sydney University? You're all here. Right. Okay, you all put your hands up. Right. This book will expand your uh, horizon for how God might use university Christians like you to do astounding things for His kingdom. It's called Shining Like Stars, and if you like stories... You'll love this book. It is just full of stories. This is not a book of theory. This is a book of actual real-life stories of university students like yourselves who've done astounding things for Jesus. Uh, It's written by a guy called uh, Lindsay Brown, who for many years was the head of IFES, which is sort of the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, of which our little EU group at Sydney Uni is a part. And it's just a, just a, a fantastic and inspiring read. 
about how God uses people just like you. So buy that, have a read of that. That's excellent, $14.99. Last two, these are representative rather than particular books you need to read. These are representative of encouraging you to tackle something of substance. Read something of substance this semester. Not just for your uni studies, but for your Christian growth. Get something that's going to be a bit meaty, a bit challenging, a bit, oh, I've actually got to think and not read this at one o'clock in the morning type book. So I've just got, I just picked two, and if you've been around annual conference a while, yes, you've heard me recommend these before because they're a good start on that sort of good, solid Christian reading. One is called How Long, O Lord. It's another book on suffering. It's written by a guy called Don Carson. It's Reflections on Suffering and Evil. This is an excellent book, and he writes this book not to help you when you are suffering. If you're going through dreadful suffering at the moment, this isn't the book I would recommend for you because it's, it's not, he hasn't written it to care for you in that situation. He's written it so that you might read it when you're not suffering, so that when suffering does come, you actually have already thought about what does God say about this. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a protective sort of measure. And it really is an excellent book, and it's a, he's a very clear writer, and he deals with the Bible very well and very faithfully, and it will help you to think at a deep level about suffering and evil in the world. I think it's an excellent book. You should all read it before you leave university, and I think you should probably read it with a friend if you don't love reading quite so much. That is, form yourself a little book club, Say, we're going to meet at Palmer, Manning, whatever, once every two weeks. We'll take turns buying the coffees and we're going to talk about that chapter that we read in Carson's How Long, O Lord. I reckon you should all read it before you graduate. Now, if you've been around for a while, you're saying, Rowan's lost his marbles because he normally always says that when he holds up that book. (laughs) So maybe he's got confused. No, I'm now saying you have to read both of them before you leave uni. I'm just up in the ante, right? And No, anyway, so... How Long, O Lord, on Suffering and Evil. And this is a classic. Um, it's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. It's, this is a big book, serves many purposes, holds down other things like that. You could use it to do bad things to your sibling or whatever. Don't do that. Read it. The reason this is a classic is because John Stott, who has now gone to be with the Lord, he, this book really will help you understand why Christians talk about the death of Jesus all the time. It's on the atonement and he really helps you understand why the cross of Jesus is at the very centre of the Christian faith. And he does it by opening the Bible with you and explaining different passages to you, but he also talks about how Christians over the last 2,000 years have understood the cross. So if you read this book, not only do you understand your Bible better, you get an introduction to theology as well. It's quite an astounding work. And I really would recommend that you read this before you graduate. Read it with a friend, form yourself a little book club, and it is actually a superb book. There's lots of them on the bookstore. Okay, done. Cool.
So you need to buy your hoodie and spend up big. They're quality books, spend up big. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, please, Father, give us the ability to understand what you have to say, help us to focus, and by your Spirit, please not just help us to understand, but help us to live what we hear you say through your word tonight. We pray it, Father, because we want to bring you glory in every aspect of our life. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. So tonight we're going to think through what it means to be a family of God's people in Christ. Because God has created you to be part of His family, that has big implications for what it means for you to be a human being. So being part of God's family, it's not an added extra onto what it means for you to be human. It's part and parcel of what God has created you for. That's why it's important to spend tonight thinking about it together. Now, just to set the scene, remember the path that we've been travelling along to think about humanity this week. We started with Jesus as the truest human and we've taken a relational approach to understand what it means to be human beings. Monday night, we looked at our relationship with God as His image bearers. That's the most important and fundamental truth about each of us. We explored some of the implications of that on Tuesday night. And then last night, we expanded out the circle of relationships to think about family, both our earthly family and the more foundational, eternal family that we have in Christ. So tonight, we're going to explore what life is like in the eternal family of God. And we're going to do it by looking at some key characteristics of God's family. Now, as the week has gone on, I've become, I've sort of taken the outlines for these talks and the scissors and I've cut them up and it's just, it's disintegrating, the outlines, becoming less and less a close reflection of the actual talk, as you may have noticed. Tonight, yeah, it's really like that. Okay, let me explain to you. I'm going to tell you where we're going because some people I like, I know, like to know where we're going. I'll tell you if that's you. If you really don't care, just come along for the ride. It'll be fine. So I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to completely skip part A of tonight's talk, which has the heading, they will be my people and I will be their God. I'll tell you why. That section really is just another way of talking about God's eternal family. And we looked at that last night. If you do want to think more about that section though, then what you should do is this, take out your pen right now and next to that section, write these words. Write EU website, ANCON 2011. Because if you go to the EU website and look for the ANCON 2011 talks under the resources tab, you will find a whole ANCON of talks, which is a new, new quality of measure of talks, an ANCON of talks. <laughs> You'll find a whole ANCON of talks that we did on the church, on the people of God in 2011. Then part B, which starts on page 47, has five characteristics of life in God's community. I'm going to skip the last three of them. 
I'm going to skip the suffering community, the waiting community, and the indwelt community. I'm not skipping them because they're not important. The suffering community, we talked a little bit about on Tuesday night when we looked at human dignity, and you talked a little bit about it this morning in faculty time looking at 1 Peter. So you could write talk 3 plus 1 Peter on top of, your, of that uh, section, if you like. The waiting community is another really important topic, and I'm thinking that that'll be a really good topic for next year's Ancon. I thought we should do resurrection as a theme next year. It's just my suggestion, and it's up to the EU to work out, but maybe you, if we all wrote Ancon 2017, question mark, question mark, on top of waiting community, then it'll happen somehow, if we all do it. I don't know. It also has a nice sort of little meta moment for me because I'm going, hey, now we, we are the waiting community waiting to do the waiting community. And, and I, that, that appealed to my quirky sense of irony. That's not the reason I did it, but that's just, anyway. And finally, if you want to explore that we're an indwelt community, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, then go to the EU website and go to Ancon 2009. And you can look up, and I've checked, all our talks are there. Again, we did a whole ANCON of talks on the Holy Spirit in 2009, and you can find all of those talks there. So, but to make up for all the bits I'm skipping, we are going to go back and cover Part B from last night's talk on love. Now, I'll just tell you, the reason I made all these changes is because I think we need a bit more time to think more deeply about some of these things, rather than just trying to quickly cover everything. And I keep telling the Howies when we do training on preaching, less is more. Less is more. Anyway, I'm hoping that will actually be the case tonight, that less turns out to be more for you. So let's jump ahead now to page 47, and the first of our characteristics of life in God's family. God's family in Christ is a worshipping community. You'll remember earlier this week we talked about being made in God's image and how representing God's presence in the world meant paying attention to His word, His wisdom and His way. That we actually, if we're going to be His image bearers, we have to treat Him as our God. That's the first mark of God's family. They treat Him, the one true living God, as their God. And that's always been the mark of God's people. It was first shadowed in the Old Testament nation of Israel when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt to be His people and He instructed them to worship Him alone. Have a look there on your page at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. It's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Lord God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So the one true living God is very clear, isn't he? You are not to worship any other gods, only him the one who rescued you and made you his own. What does it mean to worship God? 
Now, we usually associate, associate worship with some sort of religious activity, right? You might think of worship as singing or praying to God. You know, man, that worship sesh, that was off the chain. <laughs> Which is a bit challenging to translate into Mandarin, I realise that sentence. But anyway, that's okay. Um, it's not wrong to associate singing and praying with worship, but it's actually only a small part, a small part, of what Christian worship looks like. Now, if you've got a different sort of religious background, maybe you would associate worship with religious rituals, you know, spinning prayer wheels or burning incense or offering food to household gods. But in the Bible, worship doesn't just focus on your practices, your religious, particularly sort of religious rituals, it includes those, but it actually starts with your heart and your mind, worship. Worship starts with the orientation of your heart and mind towards the one true living God who's rescued you and wants to be your God. And you can see this in the two other verses I've put there on your page. Even though they don't use the word worship, they show you what worshipping God involves. Deuteronomy 6:13. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him only. So you're to have that right reverent respect for the Lord as your God. And you show that by serving Him only. Don't go around serving other gods, which aren't really gods at all. They're just fake gods. Commit yourself, rather, to serving Him. That is... Keep His Word. Be obedient to His Word. Follow His wisdom. Don't think you know better. Follow His wisdom. Walk in His way. Not the way of the world. That's worship. Listen to His Word. Heed His wisdom. Walk in His way. Or in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, there's another picture of true worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. Worship starts with your heart and mind. It's about loving the Lord as your God and loving Him with everything He's given you, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And if you love Him then you'll seek to serve Him, you'll seek to live for Him, and you'll treasure His Word, His wisdom, and His way. Now, as we know, despite having this privileged position as God's chosen people, Old Testament national Israel failed to worship God like this. Despite God's rescue of them, they kept turning away back to other gods. And it's not until Jesus arrives that we finally meet the true worshipper, so unlike national Israel, Jesus faithfully worshipped his Father in this big sense of the word worship. You can see what Jesus says there in John 14, verse 31, where he brings together the ideas of obedience and love. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. 
See, love for God shows in obedience to God. Jesus perfectly serves his Father, being obedient in everything. He's the true worshipper. And in fulfilment of God's plans to form a people for himself, Jesus then forms a new community of true worshippers around him. So when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he talked about how they were part of this new community in Jesus who worshipped the true God. There on your page, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 10. Paul says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So it's no longer the Old Testament nation of Israel that's the worshipping community. It's now those who have faith and hope in Jesus who've stopped worshipping other fake gods and now serve the living and true God in Jesus. And what does that worship of God in Christ look like? Well, the sort of things Paul mentions there. It looks like faith, love, hope, serving the true God, getting rid of your fake gods and waiting for Jesus to return. That's what worshipping the one true God looks like. But there's an important end to this story as well. The final picture is of glory. When Jesus comes again and the whole world worships Jesus as Lord of all. So in Philippians 2, Paul gives us a sneak peek of what that will be like when he says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, do you even know what it means to bow the knee? Literally, you do this. You get on your knees, you bow your knee. It was just a little test for the camera guy. He's saying, at the name of Jesus, (laughs) thank you, what he's saying is, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow before him. Every knee will bow before Jesus. And every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the future that you and I will be witness to. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's the final destiny of all of creation. That's where God's taking his world, to that moment of unified worship of Jesus. All to the glory of God the Father.
So, what does this mean for us? Two things. If you're a Christian and you've committed your life to Jesus in faith, then you, you have said no to other gods, to all other gods. And you're not going to let anything or anyone take that position in your life that only the one true living God has right to. I remember what God said to the Israelites. They were to love Him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Him only were they to serve. And that's you now. In Christ, we worship Him only. So we keep, have, to, have to keep getting rid of the fake gods that we keep sneaking back into our life. When you read about the Israelites through the Old Testament, you realize that maybe their biggest struggle was to get rid of fake gods, the idols. They kept with them the idols that they brought out of slavery in Egypt. And sometimes they picked up more fake gods and idols from the nations around them. It seems like they constantly had a few fake gods stuffed in the side of their backpack or set up in the town square. And they tried to worship that God as well as the one true living God. Or, or sometimes they replaced him with these fake gods. But there is only one true God. He's the one who's rescued us in Christ and he alone deserves our worship. We can't worship God plus something else. Because God won't tolerate it. Because nothing else is actually God and worthy of worship. They're all just imitations and fakes. So the question for us is, have we got rid of the fake gods in our life? Well, maybe the way to answer that question is to think about who or what are you trying to serve with your life? What are you trusting in to provide you with security, with fulfilment, with meaning, with joy? Are you looking to the one true God in Jesus for those things or are you seeking them in other places? Are you trying to worship some fake God on the side? Are you worshipping the God of security through a good job? Or the God of happiness through sex? Or the God of feeling loved because I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and that's your God that you're pursuing. What God might you be serving? Because whatever it is, it's a fake God, which means it cannot guarantee delivery for you for the very thing you're seeking from it. And God, the one true God, He's so much better. He's so much better because He's real. And He loves you and He can deliver. So if you're committed to Jesus, then make sure you keep saying no to the other fake gods in your life. The second implication is this. There's an important message here from God about true worship that needs to get out, that needs to be heard. Look at how Paul puts it in Acts 17. When he was speaking in the city of Athens, which was a city that was full of idols, full of fake gods, he said to the Athenians, Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead." God has fixed a day when He's going to call each and every person to account for who or what they've worshipped. Have they been a faithful image bearer and worshipped the one true living God alone? Or have they turned away to worship other things? And He's appointed a judge for that day. It's Jesus. And we know that because God's announced it to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead ahead of everyone else. And so God commands all people now to repent, stop worshipping those fake gods that we create for ourselves, start now worshipping Him, the true God, before that day of judgment arrives. See, who you choose to worship with your life really matters. It's not a small matter because it has eternal consequences. It's not a subjective matter of personal preference because there is objectively only one true God and as our maker, He cares about who each of us worship. And it's not a slow matter because God has set a day when He will call each of us to account for our life as a worshipper. We don't know when that day will be. Yeah, it could be tomorrow. It might be many, many years away from now. It could be tonight. But He has set a day. And since we don't know when that day of judgment will arrive, there is an urgency to God's call to us to repent and worship Him only. Get your life in order now. Since God has set a day when He will hold each of us to account. So let me speak just for a moment, particularly to you if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. It's so great that you have come along this week to Ancon, and I really do hope that you've had a fun and an interesting time. But most importantly, you've had the opportunity this week to learn more about the Lord Jesus, who He is and what He's done for you. And you've heard His call to each of us to repent to put aside whatever other fake gods we might be serving and instead commit ourselves wholeheartedly to Him in faith and in trust. That's God's good plan for you. That's the trajectory He wants to put you on, from death in Adam to new life in Jesus, because He loves you and He wants the very best for you. In fact, He wants the very best for you even more than you possibly realize. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to turn down His offer of forgiveness and a new start with Jesus? Are you just going to walk away from that? Why? You are incredibly precious to God. And Jesus willingly went to death on the cross to secure your forgiveness and make it possible for you to be remade in His image and become the person that God wants you to be. 
Don't turn your back and just walk away from that. Not when you know that there's a judgment coming and you will have to answer for your sins. Not when there's a real choice between hell and eternal life. Don't turn back on God's love for you in Jesus. Accept His gift of forgiveness and life. Take hold of His offer of a new identity in Jesus. That is God's loving, wonderful gift to you, for you to take. Now, taking hold of that gift from God, it is the best decision you will ever make. So if you've been thinking about it this week, don't put the decision off anymore. The time is now. God knows where you are at. He hears. He sees. He knows. Talk to Him about it. Tell Him you're sorry for not treating Him as God. Tell Him you want to follow Jesus. Ask Him to help you. It's not complicated to become a Christian. Tell him you're sorry, tell him you want to follow Jesus, and ask him to help you. There's no better, no more wonderful decision you will make in your life. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to make that decision now. So we're going to pause here, and in a moment we're going to sing a song together. And if you'd like to take this moment now to become a Christian and to take hold of the new identity in Jesus that he offers you, then during this song, just squeeze out of your row and head back to the fireplace back there. There's going to be a number of EU staff workers over there who'd love to pray with you and help you commit your life to Jesus. Don't be worried about what other people around you think because, frankly, this is between you and God. That's the most important relationship that there is. So while we stand and sing, if you're ready to start new with Jesus, then head back there to the fireplace and commit yourself to your loving Heavenly Father. Okay, let's stand and sing. All praise and honour to you our almighty, loving Father. All praise and honour to you for what you have done for all of us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. When we consider his cross, we consider our great sin, and we consider your astounding love. We're humbled and we want to sing your praises today, tomorrow, and every day, for all eternity, because you are almighty, loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever to be praised. Amen.
And Jesus said, There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 religious or righteous people who don't need to repent. If you've got your book there, let's turn back to page 41. We've looked at our first characteristic of life in God's family. We're a worshipping community. Second characteristic, we're to be a loving community. Page 41. If we're going to be a community of God's image bearers, then above everything else, we must be a community of love. Why? Because that's who God is. He in himself is a community of love. God is a community of love. He's Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal relationships of love. You can see there in the diagram that on that page the mutual love that God the Father and Jesus the Son have for each other. If you start there with Mark chapter 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism, as we talked about earlier, God the Father speaks from the sky and he says, You are my Son whom I love. And then Jesus in John 17, verse 24, reflects that this love is an insight into the eternal relationships of God the Father and God the Son when he prays to his Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So this is an eternal love that God the Father has for God the Son. But then in John 14, 31 there, Jesus shows that this love is two-way. He says, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So this is the insight God graciously gives us into the Trinitarian love within his own being as God. But that's not all. As we saw last night, what God reveals in the Gospel is this astounding truth that his love then reaches out and embraces us and includes us in the Father-Son relationship. Have a look at what Jesus says there in John 14, 21. It's quite astounding, really. He says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Well, I just can't get rid of sort of the engineering background in me, and so I have to draw a diagram, right, of that verse to try to understand all the things that are going on. I've got the picture there for you on the page. God the Father and Jesus His Son have this mutual love for each other, and when we commit ourselves in love for Jesus, that love of the Father for the Son reaches out, extends out to embrace us. And we're now loved by God the Father like Jesus is loved. It's another way of talking about our adoption into God's family. We've now been adopted as children or as sons in, of God, sharing that same love that God the Father has for Jesus the Son. God loves you, his adopted child, every bit as much as he loves Jesus. Do you believe that? That can't be true. It's not possible, surely, that God the Father would love me let alone you, um, as much, sorry, 
Just, just checking you were awake there. Um, it, it's surely not possible that God would love any of us as much as He would love Jesus. I'm sure He can love us, but it's sort of like Jesus is His favorite, right? And then we sort of... No. God adopts you into His family and loves you as with the same love with which He loves the Son, Jesus. That's humbling, isn't it? And so because of this, according to God, love is to be the observable characteristic. We love because we are loved. As His loved children, God calls us to love one another. Look at the encouragement John gives us in 1 John 4. Dear friends, he writes, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love amongst us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. He loved and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also have to love one another. No one's... God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. According to John, you can't truly know God and not be committed to loving others. Because if you know God, then you know His great love for you, seen in Jesus' death for you, and that knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus drives us then to love one another. In fact, it's that deep commitment to love one another that marks us out as Jesus' disciples. Or at least Over the page on page 42, Jesus says... A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love This is quite a profound thing for Jesus to say. When I'm having some trouble here. Speak for too long, that's the problem. <laughs> so be it. Now I'm really fired up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Cool. We expect people to know we're Christians um, by our, I don't know, upright morals, by the fact that we don't sleep around or, or we don't get drunk, we don't cheat or steal. 
Or maybe they'll know us, we're Christians by the fact that we go to church or you go along to that crazy EU group. Or maybe by the fact that you carry a Bible, that you read the Bible, that you pray. Or maybe it's because you can explain the Trinity or you know what propitiation means. Maybe it's because you wear an EU t-shirt. But Jesus expects that the world out there will know that we're his disciples by the commitment and quality of our love for each other. We're to be God's loving family. So they'll look at Christians and go, look at how they love each other. It's because they follow that guy, Jesus. And then we're called to love like our Father, loving like God. You can see what Jesus said to his disciples there in John 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Well, what does that look like? Jesus then reminds us, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. That, of course, is how Jesus loved us. He laid down his life for us. And that's the model we're to follow for how we love each other. I mean, that's really full on, to lay down your life for somebody, to genuinely give up my opportunities, my privileges, to put someone else ahead of me. But Jesus is saying that's not just some nice ideal, that's what Jesus calls us to do as his disciples. Love each other as I've loved you. There's no room in the Christian family for me first. Because Jesus said, you first. That's what the cross was all about. You first. Now, there's a real challenge there of living like this. What will it mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, there on your page, gives you some idea of what that will look like for each of us. Let's think about this description of love. Love is patient. Is God abundantly patient with you? Yes, absolutely, incredibly so. That's what love does. Love is patient. So we need to be patient with one another, patient with people's struggles, with their slipping back into sin, patient with their anxieties and weaknesses, Love is always there for the long haul with people because love is patient. Love is kind. Now, we all think kindness is a good thing. We applaud it when we see others show kindness. Yeah, that's great. They're being kind. But, you know, I sort of can't help but wonder if our experience of kindness from each other is, is more like the occasional streak of sunlight breaking through on a cloudy day. You get it every now and then. But really, we should be living in the bright sunny day of God's kindness to us in Jesus reflected daily in our interactions with each other. Sometimes our default is almost more reflective of cold Darwinian evolution. It's survival of the fittest. If you can't cut it, then I'm sorry for you, but it's too bad. I'm getting on with Project Me. 
But love, as we see it in Jesus, is kind. It acts in genuine concern for those who are in difficulty. Paul then lists off a series of things that love does not do. And they're all about how you compare yourself with others. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. Love means thinking about others ahead of yourself. Love's not about project me. Love says, I am fully on for project you. Because that was Jesus' attitude towards us. Well, what happens when your sisters and brothers in God's family sin against you? Or when you feel tempted to do wrong to them? Well, Paul goes on. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. That's just a reflection of God's love of us, I think. He's not easily angered by us. He's incredibly patient with us, despite all the times we sin against Him. He keeps no record of our wrongs. Now that we're in Christ, He wipes them clean. He hides them behind His back. He crushes them under His feet. And as His loved children, we're to love like He loves, even when, we have to, even when we're sinned against by one another. And Paul then finishes off this section Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The emphasis is pretty clear, right? It's on the word always. It's the constancy of love that Paul seems to have in mind. Genuine love is not fickle. It's not on again, off again. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, no matter what the circumstances and no matter what's thrown at it. In the Old Testament, God's love and faithfulness were tied together. And if you look through the Psalms, we're constantly reminded of God's steadfast love. That is, His love is steadfast. It doesn't change. He just keeps on loving. That's what Paul is reflecting here. That same sort of steadfast, unwavering love is what we're called on to show each other. And what does this persisting, steadfast love do? Well, notice the first thing mentioned there in verse 7. It protects. The word literally means to protect or preserve something from whatever threatens it by covering it. Love always covers and protects the vulnerable, the needy. Like how God protects us in Christ and by His Spirit. In love, He protects us from the evil one. From ever being tempted beyond what we can bear. And in that way, He preserves us, protects us in love until we finally see Jesus face to face. And so we're called on to show that same love. To cover and protect the vulnerable and the needy within God's family. Now, that is something that tragically and awfully the church has not been good at. To our shame, we have a poor record, indeed a terrible record, 
of failing to protect the vulnerable and the needy within our own Christian family. All the terrible abuse that took place in Christian organisations that recently has come to light, and thank God it's come to light, actually, through the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse. The blind eye that's often been turned within the church to domestic violence within church families. The assumptions that get made in church all the time that, pretty, that sort of communicate, oh, everyone's married with children, which makes then life in the Christian community hard for many who aren't. To our shame, we have not been great at showing love by always protecting the vulnerable and the needy in our own family. So it struck me when I was thinking about this that protecting people is a much higher bar than just supporting them or encouraging them. Protecting is much more proactive. It's about taking the initiative rather than just reacting to something that's already happened. Love always protects. So think about some of the issues we've talked about this week. Those who might feel marginalised amongst God's people because they're different in some way to everyone else. Maybe it's because they're single or divorced or a single parent or same-sex attracted or incapacitated or can't speak the language as well as everybody else. Or they're young or they're old or they're struggling with mental health. Love, does, love doesn't just support these people, doesn't just encourage them, It protects them from shame that they might feel, from feelings of isolation, from discrimination, from prejudice, from loneliness. Love always protects because that's part of how God loves us. But thirdly, love's range. This love we show is not restricted to just other believers. We're called by God as his children to show that same sort of love to those who are not yet part of God's family. Jesus tells a powerful parable about that in answer to the question, well, if I have to love my neighbour, who is my neighbour? It's the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. The point of his parable is that we must not restrict the idea of neighbour to just other members of God's people. In his parable, if you know it, the Samaritan, who's not a member of God's people, is more of a loving neighbour to the person in need than those who are part of God's people. And Jesus' point is, if this guy in my made-up story, the Samaritan, who's not a member of God's people, if he can show that sort of love to one of us, then how can you possibly restrict the idea of neighbour to just your fellow believers? The Apostle Paul reflects the same idea in Galatians 6, 9-10. He urges us, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So those last two phrases are important. Let's do good to all people. We're not to restrict our love to just other Christians. And then he adds, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So it is important, first of all, to make sure that we are loving our sisters and brothers in Christ. Not because others don't matter, because we're told to do good to all as we have opportunity, but we must not neglect loving our sisters and brothers in Christ 
because the world will know we're Jesus' disciples by our love for one another. The love within the Christian community is a key part of our testimony to the world that God is love. Because look how his children love each other. And look, they're not stingy in their love. They show the same love to everyone else. And when we love like that, extending out our love to those who are not yet in God's family, we're just copying God himself. Because he lavished his love on us even when we were his enemies. That's what the cross of Jesus tells us. And so Jesus calls us to love exactly like that. Jesus says in Luke 6, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What does all of this mean for you, for your humanity? Part of God's plan for your life is that you, as his loved child, would echo the love of Jesus in the way you give yourself in love to your sisters and brothers in Christ and to the world at large as you have opportunity. That's how Jesus, the truest human, lived. And that's how now we are called to be in him as those who know his great love for us. Giving ourselves in love to our sisters and brothers in Christ and to the world at large as you have opportunity. That's how you live as a true human being, like Jesus. Well, let's go to our final characteristic that we're going to look at tonight. Turn with me to page 48. We're to be a testifying community. God's people have always been a people who speak about him, not just to each other, but to the rest of the world. This is not something that we decided to do on our own. It's part of what God himself has called us to do. You can trace that right through the Bible story, as you can see there on the diagram, page 48. You start with Old Testament Israel. When God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt, he brings them to himself. He says to them in Exodus 19, although the whole earth is mine, he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Well, the role of priests in the ancient world was to act as an intermediary between the God and the rest of the people. And part of the priest's job was to tell the people about the God and what the God wanted them to do. And so here, the one true living God is saying to the nation of Israel, you as a nation will be my priests. You'll tell the rest of creation about me. And that's what Old Testament national Israel did in the, both the way they lived and in the words they said. They communicated to the rest of the world who the one true living God really was, what he was like and how he wanted us to live. At least that's what national Israel was meant to do. Their slavery to sin meant that they often repeatedly failed to do that. Nevertheless, you can see places, particularly in the Psalms, where they understood their calling as God's people, that it was to testify to the world about the one true God. And you can chase up those Psalm references later. When Jesus started his public ministry, he too came with a very clear message about God. He was testifying. You can see it there from Mark chapter 1. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Jesus testifies to the reality of the coming kingdom of God in words and in deeds through his miracles, announcing God's call to everyone to repent and believe. And then after his death and resurrection, Jesus passes that same message on to his disciples. There on your page, Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus' expectation is that his disciples will go and make more disciples. In fact, that's his command. We're to be disciple-making disciples. And you can't make disciples without testifying, without speaking about God. We testify to the reality of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we encourage all people to heed Jesus' message to repent and believe the gospel. And notice the global scope of Jesus' mission plan. Go and make disciples of all nations. God's plan here through Jesus is to see all nations, all people in all nations, presented with the opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus. And that's going to happen through us, his present disciples. That's Jesus' global mission plan. And he chooses to achieve it through us, his testifying community. And God gives us a sneak peek, actually, at that final end point of Jesus' global mission there in Revelation 7, under the diagram on your page. In a vision, John the Apostle sees the heavenly reality of all of God's people gathered around God's throne. And this is what he says, After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Two things to notice about this picture. First, it's a multicultural, multilingual community of God's people gathered around his throne. Remember, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, and here they are, a great nation, from a great multitude from every nation, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Jesus. So when Jesus said, go and make disciples of every nation, he clearly really means it. This really is God's plan. Second thing is to notice what God's people are doing as they stand around the throne. I mean, not that they're waving around the branches, but I mean that they're continuing to testify to who God is and what He's done. They're still going for it. They haven't stopped. Verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So God's people in glory are still testifying about Him. God's people are always testifying about him from the very beginning right through to the very end. We're his kingdom of priests, his testifying community, his disciple-making disciples. From Old Testament Israel to the assembled disciples from every nation in heaven, God's people are always testifying about him, who he is and the great salvation in Jesus. So what does this mean for us? First, we're committed to proclaiming the gospel. 
speaking about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, it is not a weird thing for us to do. In fact, that's who God has made us to be as his testifying people, as his kingdom of priests. We'll be testifying about his grace and goodness all the way into eternity and then forever onwards because that's how great he is and we want everyone to know all the time. Now the world will keep telling you to sit down and shut up. Keep your religion to yourself, keep it off the streets, keep it out of our schools, keep it out of the public square. And they'll support that claim, that opinion with the claim that your religious views, like all religious views, are just subjective opinion, not objective reality. So you should keep them private, don't bring them out in public. But it's just not the case. God really did raise Jesus from the dead. The grave was empty, the body was gone, hundreds of people saw him alive, according to 1 Corinthians 15. People touched him, they walked with him, they ate with him. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. How can we just sit down and shut up? Because that means, his resurrection, that Jesus is who he said he was. He's the saviour. He's the coming judge. He's the only one to whom we can turn to find forgiveness and eternal life. And what's more, we know this because God has given us this new identity and new life in Jesus. We can't just shut up. We want everyone to know. And so with humility and gentleness, but also boldness and love, we're going to tell the world who Jesus is and what he's done. We're going to be God's testifying community, his kingdom of priests, a family of disciple-making disciples, whether that be in our homes or at work or on campus with our friends. We're committed to a loving proclamation of this good news, this gospel, which means we want to be people who have eyes open to gospel needs and opportunities wherever we are. Wherever God has placed you, in whatever set of relationships, you're there as God's child, his representative image bearer in Christ. So be prepared to testify about him, to explain who he is, what he's done, and why you put your trust in him. I was sharing with those who are here at Precon on Sunday that one of the reasons I'm so excited about EU's Is Jesus Festival is not because it just has an awesome hoodie. That's not the reason I'm excited. The reason I'm excited about the festival is because it gives each of us an opportunity to think about how our friends on campus might best hear the gospel of Jesus. So I remember last time we ran a festival-style outreach in the EU, um, a second-year engineer, Megan, came up to me and said, a whole bunch of our second-year engineers have worked out that if we ran a festival opportunity in this particular room in chemical engineering, 
at 12 o'clock on this particular day, a whole bunch of our friends have that hour free and we will have just come out of a lecture next door. So we want you to run an opportunity in that room at that time and we think our can, we can get our friends to come along. I'm going, awesome, that's great. But it has to be on the topic of Jesus and maths. <laughs> right. Okay. So I put together a gospel talk on Jesus and maths. And they got about inviting their friends, and about 25 people showed up. And at the end of me going through talking about Jesus and maths, (laughs) there was no one who wanted to know more about maths. (laughs) But there were two people who said, I'd like to know more about Jesus. That was awesome. Wasn't that awesome? I would never in a billion years thinking about writing, well, maybe if I was super bored after a billion years, I might think of it, but I would never think of talking about Jesus and maths. Never. How good is that? What are the gospel needs and opportunities right where God's placed you, amongst your relationships on campus, amongst your friends? How could you use the festival and EU in general this semester to see your friends and classmates hear the gospel of Jesus so they might be saved? So they might be there on that final day gathered around the throne waving their palm branch. But I actually want you to think bigger than that as well. See, we've seen that God's plan is to have people from every nation and culture and language gathered around his throne And you, as a tertiary-educated Christian, living in a well-off, wealthy Western city, with solid evangelical grounding in God's Word through the EU and through many of our churches, you have a particular opportunity to bring, help bring God's global mission plan about. See, you could spend the the rest of your life Loving Jesus in your comfortable Sydney church, working a mainstream job in the city like everyone else, spending the next 40 years working out how you can buy a house close to the city in a crazy Sydney property market. You could do that. But I think we can do more for God than that. We know the massive needs around the world for the gospel. We've been hearing them all week from our LRLR workers who've come to share with us in our faculties. There really are so many places around the world where the church is far less resourced and the people living there are far less reached than many of the suburbs we live in. And we're not just talking about overseas, we're talking about Darwin, southwest Sydney, Lakemba, Canberra, rural New South Wales let alone Nepal, Peru, Taiwan, Vanuatu, Italy, the Middle East, the Philippines. So much relative gospel need amongst the less reached and the less resourced. And we, you, have a particular opportunity under God, blessed as we are, coming from our 
well-resourced and well-reached places, coming from the EU at Sydney Uni in particular, you have a particular opportunity to help serve Jesus amongst those less reached and less resourced. Are you up to that particular challenge, though? Would you make the risky, and I put it in scare quotes there, would you make that risky decision to take a job after uni that would enable you to be part of a church in a less reached area? Forgo the job in the city. Seek for the job in Albury-Wodonga. Seek for the job in Bathurst. Seek for the job in Peru. Would you make that sort of decision? Would you leave your relatively well-resourced church to be part of God's people in a less-resourced church? See, I was reflecting on thinking it's not the way the world thinks. Our world thinks bigger is better and you want to always be moving up and into greater and greater comfort. So I start at the bottom in my workplace and gradually work my way up to the nice corner office with a view. I start with a dingy two-bedroom flat, I'm in a nice suburb of course, but a dingy two-bedroom flat and work my way up to the renovated four-bedroom house in a leafy suburb with good transport. I start out doing the hard yakka as a youth group leader and playing music at church and serving in kids' church. But as I get older, I'll be able to take more of a back seat, let others do those hard yards at church, and surely my church life should be becoming more comfortable, less onerous. That's just how life's meant to be, right? That's how we think. It's not how it was for Jesus. Remember, we always start with Jesus. His ministry wasn't one of greater and greater comfort. It was, in worldly terms, a descent to greater and greater sacrificial suffering. Real maturity in Christ is seen in embracing greater and greater sacrifice in order to love others and see God's kingdom grow. So are you up for making radical, kingdom-centered choices with your life to see Jesus' global mission plan furthered? Will you give up a nice mainstream career path to serve the less reached, less resourced? Maybe give up secular work altogether and take two years out, become a Howie, or go into full-time word-based ministry? Will you make the radical decision to move to an LRLR area when you move out of home? Will you think about how you could become part of an LRLR church when it comes time for you to leave your present church family? Friends, give up pursuing that fake God of greater and greater comfort. There will be plenty of comfort in glory. Be like Jesus, the truest human, our brother. Embracing loving sacrifice. And consider the opportunities that God's given you to serve the less reached and less resourced. We keep talking about the less reached and less resourced in the EU because we're convinced under God 
He could use us here to make a real difference. And we focus our concern for the less reached, less resourced via a particular pledge that we encourage EUers to consider making. It's on the very last page of your booklet, page 118, but it's also on a sheet that you received on your page. Can you either turn up, find this sheet would be best, the little sheet on your page, because it's got more information on it, though the pledge itself is on page 118. Turn it up and have a look at it. Grab out this sheet in particular. I'm just going to point out to you that it has two parts, this pledge. We've been encouraging EUers to think about this pledge over a number of years now. The two parts are, first, will you commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider going to serve the less reached, less resourced in cross-cultural Sydney, that means the cross-cultural parts of Sydney, the rest of Australia or overseas? Now, that, that bit's about the long term. It's about leaving your current location, your current suburb, your current church, and actually going to serve the less reached, less resourced in one of those places. That's a big decision. We know that. And it might be several years from now before you will even be in a position to make a change like that. That's why it's a five-year commitment. I'll commit to praying and thinking over the next five years about how I could serve the LRLR long term. But the second part of the pledge is more immediate. It's about now. Will you commit to doing something in the next 12 months to serve the LRLR with the gospel? That's there because I think if we're serious about making big decisions in the future, the best way to get ready for those big decisions is to make some little decisions now. So it might be that you decide to go on an EU mission trip at the end of the year to an LRLR location. That would fit in with that second part of that pledge. Or maybe you'll offer to teach kids' church at the church down the road from you, which you know doesn't have any uni students to help teach the kids on a Sunday morning. Or maybe you'd get involved with EU Focus or Cusmin on campus. Reach out with the gospel to international students or to students from a Muslim background. Just do something concrete in the next 12 months. So that's the LRLR pledge, two parts, the long-term and the immediate. Now, this pledge has been around. Hand up if you've made this pledge before. Put your hand up. That's awesome. Look at that. That's fantastic. I pray that God will strengthen you to keep that pledge. A good way to kick yourself along in keeping that pledge will be to come to the Next Steps conference on Saturday the 17th of September. There's an ad in your booklet you can find. Or maybe do the new LRLREU Equip course that starts this semester. And keep praying about it, keep thinking about it, and keep doing something to serve the less reached and less resourced. And if you want to recommit yourself to that pledge, you go, yep, no, I'm still on for that pledge. I'm not letting that fall behind me. I want you to fill it out again. Fill it out again as a physical act of recommitment to the pledge that you've made previously. Fill it out. And if you've not made the pledge before, can I, can I encourage you to seriously consider doing so? If you'd like to commit yourself via this pledge, fill in that sheet, and, our, and then we're going to gather them all together, and I'll tell you how in a moment. What we're going to do is See over there, it says LRLR Pledge on the wall there. 
what we're going to do is, having filled out the sheet, if you're up for making the pledge, I want you to fill it out, tear it off, and at the end of the session, you walk over there, and there's going to be some people there with blue tack. And you grab your piece of blue tack, and you grab your sort of torn-off sheet, and you stick it up on the wall. Okay? That's how, what, what we're going to do with that. That's how we're going to collect them. Why are we talking about this? Because our prayer is that together we might commit to serving the less rich, less resourced in this way and that God might therefore wonderfully bless his global church and build Jesus' kingdom so that on that final day we might see how he's graciously used us here in the EU to gather people from every nation, culture and language around his throne in glory in his family. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for calling us into your family in Christ Jesus by your grace through faith. Please help us by your Spirit to worship you and you alone with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Help us to get rid of those fake gods that are not gods at all. By your power, please help us to be a community that loves in word and deed. And strengthen us to testify to you in all the situations and relationships in which you place us. On campus, especially this semester, and amongst the less reached and less resourced. So that we might see that uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, language and culture gathered around your throne, proclaiming your salvation in the Lord Jesus. Lord, speed that day and use us however you would like to your praise and glory until then. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.